Hello, and welcome to the April 2023 Respiratory Care Editor's Commentary and Respiratory Care Podcast. My name is Rich Branson. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Respiratory Care. This month's editor's choice is the evaluation of over-the-counter portable oxygen concentrators by Cassaberry and co-workers. They note that direct-to-consumer advertising of portable concentrators has led to the online sale of low-cost portable concentrators not cleared by FDA. Using a bench model simulating a patient at exertion, they measured the delivered oxygen with three portable concentrators and compared those to an oxygen cylinder. They measured end tidal partial pressure of oxygen as a surrogate for alveolar PaO2. They reported that the highest PO2 is obtained with a cylinder, while only the FDA cleared portable concentrator produced meaningful increases in delivered oxygen. They concluded that caregivers and patients should avoid over-the-counter POC devices due to lack of efficacy. In accompanying editorial, I discussed the issue of direct-to-consumer sales of portable oxygen concentrators, which are well-intended, may place patients at risk in the absence of respiratory therapy guidance. While you can buy a FDA-cleared concentrator directly from the company um, if the patient has the resources, however, patients can also go online shopping and buy devices that have not been approved by the FDA. In a preamble to this editorial, I searched Amazon.com and found at least 20 or 30 different portable concentrators that based on their size and weight would be impossible to deliver the amount of oxygen they suggest that they can. And in fact, if you look into this a little bit more, you find that many patients who bought concentrators online list comments complaining that they either didn't work or only worked suboptimally and that they could never get a refund after their purchase. Bataglini et al. evaluated the effects of physiotherapy on hemodynamics, gas exchange, and cerebral physiology in ventilated patients with and without COVID-19. They found improved gas exchange in subjects with COVID-19 with no impact on cerebral dynamics measured by ultrasound. Of note, none of the subjects had intracranial pathology in the study. Probably would have been a uh, more complete study if they had had patients who had head injuries and were measuring intracranial pressure. They concluded that protocolized physiotherapy improved gas exchange in subjects with COVID-19 while improving cerebral oxygenation in non-COVID subjects. Tanopoulos provides accompanying commentary. He suggests that while these short-term physiologic changes provide evidence of clinical benefit, important patient outcomes such as length of stay require investigation in patients with cerebral pathophysiology and how they tolerate the physiotherapy that we routinely perform. Terzi and others performed a bench study of mechanical insufflation and exufflation and the impact of simulated airway collapse on cough peak flow. They evaluated four different MIE devices and modeled airway collapse with a flexible tube inside a rigid chamber. They reported that cough peak flow differed significantly between devices, highlighting the limitations of using cough peak flow alone to determine effectiveness. We've published a number of papers about mechanical insufflation and exufflation in the last several years, and the studies are all pretty consistent. It's the expiratory flow bias, higher flow during the expiratory phase, than during the inspiratory phase that results in secretion movement. Fossad and others evaluated the measurement of cough peak flow in mechanically ventilated subjects without disconnecting them from the ventilator. They compared cough peak flow measured with the ventilator's expiratory flow sensor and a held-held peak flow meter. In 61 subjects, they found that cough peak flow was readily measured using the ventilator. 
Denise Willis considers both the Terzi and Fawcett papers in an accompanying editorial. She notes that with the increasing use of mechanical insufflation exufflation and the measurement of cough peak flow, our understanding of the complexities of MIE use, MIE use in varying scenarios requires further research. What works in a patient with a tracheostomy may, be, may not work in a patient with neuromuscular disease with an intact upper airway. Macedo et al. performed a randomized crossover trial in COPD subjects comparing a 20-minute session of intermittent interpulmonary deflation technique and positive extroid pressure therapy on separate days. Lung volumes were measured via body plethysmography and helium dilution techniques, and spirometry results were reviewed before and after each therapy. They found no differences in the functional residual capacity or trapped gas volume. Residual volume is lower with the deflation technique, but the importance of these differences is unclear. Essay and others conducted a cross-sectional observational study to evaluate the ability of deep recurrent neural network models, long short-term memory, gated recurrent unit, and gated recurrent unit with trainable decay being methods of um, neural networks to predict failure of non-invasive respiratory support, both high flow nasal cannula and non-invasive ventilation. They took data from a large southwestern U.S. health network over seven years to create the model. Input variables included laboratory data, gas exchange, and cardiopulmonary variables. In over 22,000 subjects, they found the long, short-term memory model had the best accuracy for predicting non-invasive respiratory support failure. Accurate predictions were made 12 hours after admission and well before clinical signs of failure began to be seen. Dinesh et al. performed a retrospective multicenter observational cohort study of 15,000 consecutive hospitalizations of COVID-19 patients admitted to 25 adult hospitals as part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's Discovery Viral Respiratory Illness Universal Study known as VIRUS, the COVID-19 registry. They reported that the majority of subjects received oxygen via nasal cannula with increasing numbers requiring invasive ventilation in the first week. At week four, 70% of subjects required high flow nasal cannula, non-invasive ventilation, or invasive ventilation. These data help to describe respiratory support requirements across a wide range of facilities. Of course, patient, fewer patients later in disease were on just nasal cannula because they'd either gotten better or moved on to more aggressive support. Linares et al. conducted a cross-sectional study of spirometry tests over three years in children five to 15 years of age with diagnostic suspicion of asthma who had a methacholine or exercise test. In 20% of tests, bronchodilator response was identified in the forced expiratory flow, FEF 2575. They concluded that assessment of FEF 2575 alone is not always reliable for ruling in or ruling out airway hyperresponsiveness in this setting of normal spirometry in suspected asthma. Chang and others evaluated the association between self-management behaviors and psychological resilience in subjects with COPD. Subjects completed a questionnaire based on the 20-item COPD self-management scale and 25-item Connor Davidson resilience scale through a face-to-face -face interview. They found that self-management and psychological resilience were positively correlated and significantly associated in a linear regression model. Embody and coworkers performed a retrospective chart review of the new onset vocal cord dysfunction in a children's hospital during COVID-19. One year prior to the pandemic, vocal cord dysfunction was seen in 5% of subjects compared to 10% of subjects during the first year of the pandemic. They suggest that this doubling of the vocal cord dysfunction incidence must be accounted for during evaluations of patients to prevent unnecessary therapy. 
Again, we've seen a number of patient papers over the last couple of years published in the journal looking at an increased incidence of tracheal stenosis after intubation in patients with COVID-19. Some people want to link to the presence of the virus in the airway, and others suggest it's just that these patients were acutely ill and severely ill, often in the prone position, often ventilated for long periods of time. Um, so that this link remains to be decided. Bianchi and others present a short report on the impact of awake prone positioning and non-invasive ventilation on respiratory effort in COVID-19. They found the combination of therapies reduced respiratory effort. Lou and colleagues described the use of 3D printing to develop a high-fidelity bronchial tree for bronchoscopy training. Veldowen and others provide a systematic review on mechanical insufflation exfallation use in subjects with neuromuscular disease. They included 25 studies that enrolled over 600 subjects and reported that MIE was associated with improved cough peak flow and high patient satisfaction. Again, in patients at home, getting non-invasive ventilation with neuromuscular disease. They note, however, that evidence is lacking to make any definitive conclusions. We appreciate you subscribing to the Respiratory Care Podcast and hope to reach out to you again in the next month. Thank you. To receive the content of this and past issues of the journal, visit our website at www.rcjournal.com. There you can also subscribe to receive podcasts of future issues.